0: Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. For six months, Jenny Stiletovich waded through the muck. Jenny's WLRN's award-winning environmental reporter. Her reporting on pythons overtaking the Everglades recently won a national Edward R. Murrow award. This time, she's focused on the decades-long battle to make the Everglades work as nature intended. To do that, Jenny put on her wading boots. She slogged through the Everglades with Miccosukee tribal elders and local fishing guides. She plotted through decades of legal wrangling in the name of Everglades restoration. At the end, she emerged with a new podcast from WLRN News, distributed by the NPR Network. It's called Bright Lit Place, a sacred term for the river of grass that makes Florida special. Today, we'll hear part of the first episode of Bright Lit Place. Afterward, we'll have Jenny in the studio to talk about the six-part series, She'll be joined by Pulitzer Prize winning photographer Patrick Farrell, who helped document her tireless work. Here's Jenny with Bright Lit Place.
1: As a boy, Michael Frank lived on a tree island surrounded by miles of sawgrass in the Everglades.
2: Be careful now, there's some holes in here too. There's lime rock underneath, but then again, there's holes.
1: Islands like his once dotted the vast shallow river of grass that spilled over the banks of Lake Okeechobee and flowed south towards the place where we're walking, across the sawgrass marshes and south to the tip of Florida. The marshes formed a bowl between the coastal ridge along South Florida's east coast and the cypress and mangrove swamps to the west before dumping into the Gulf of Mexico and Florida Bay.
2: If you feel our soft spot, There's a hole in the lime rock.
1: Frank is showing me how to find water in the dry season by digging a hole. It's kind of
2: like a well. What you would do, you you go ahead and make your hole. Put the mud on the side, This way, you know where it is. (laughs) It is stuff on it, and during the dry season, the only way you can get water is through that hole. And not only you, the rest of the animals would would, would congregate at that hole. Okay, you want to go further or are you? Yeah, yeah. My, my knees are gone, so that's why I gotta walk deadly.
1: Frank's an old man now. He's a tribal elder with the Mikasuki tribe, and the world he grew up in is mostly gone. The sprawling river was dammed up to make way for farms and a booming real estate market. This part of the Everglades is just a sliver of the tribe's ancestral homelands, making up the 75,000 acre Alligator Alley Reservation here
2: in the center of the Everglades. The tribe has a special name for it. means a bright lit place. It's like shining, up. look at that. look at it. It's shining, the water, from the sun. Hayad lit means light. It's lit up.
1: You're listening to Bright Lit Place, a podcast from WLRN News distributed by the NPR Network with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Over the next six episodes, we'll retrace the decades-long fight over land, water, and the willpower to save what's left of this watery wilderness.
3: We need to change. We keep doing the same thing year after year after year.
1: Historically, the Everglades covered nearly 4,000 square miles, a river of grass 100 miles long and 40 miles across. Now, only a fifth of that wilderness is left. The rest has been carved into pieces to provide a massive system for water supply and flood control. That infrastructure paved the way for modern South Florida. It's also what's now killing the Everglades. Too much water gets stored in some places, other parts are dying of thirst.
2: We have lived according with, with nature and with the animals and the birds, but development, people want more land, people want more access from here to there. That comes first. With
1: climate change making natural events like hurricanes and wildfires worse, we now know that getting our natural systems, like the Everglades, to work again is more important than ever. But reversing the damage in the Everglades has been an epic
4: fight. We're dealing with an environmental crisis. Because so if we start finger pointing, we're just gonna go all the way back to the colonization of America.
1: We're gonna focus on the biggest effort yet a sprawling comprehensive Everglades restoration plan approved by Congress in 2000. It's often called SERP. The plan is like a giant puzzle, trying to reconnect the pieces of the Everglades, now divided by levees and canals and farms and cities. Originally, it was expected to cost just under $8 billion, split between the U.S. government and Florida. At the end of 20 years, more than 60 projects were supposed to save the wilderness, It could have also given Florida a head start on fighting climate change, but that's not what happened. Growing up, Frank's family lived on a tree island called Highland.
2: And when one of my grandfather's friends told him, hey, there's a There's an island over here where nobody ever lived. It's got a lot of trees and it's high. And when the water's high, it never goes on the water. So that's when we moved from Casalapo all the way to that island. And that's where I was born and most of our brothers and sisters.
1: The Everglades is where the tribe lived and sought refuge during multiple wars. There were more of the tree islands then, and they were bigger. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, all lived in airy chickies and farm corn or raised pigs. But these days, the islands that are left are smaller. That's because the bright lit place now sits in an area that's regularly flooded and hemmed in by levees. It's used to hold the water that replenishes South Florida's drinking water aquifer and to keep the coast from flooding. Instead of a wide river of grass flowing across ridges and sloughs like corrugated cardboard, the water gets squeezed into canals and compartments where it can remain unnaturally
2: high. My island's always about a foot underwater every year, but during the, like a heavy hurricane season, it's about two, three feet underwater every year. There are the big trees. The reason why we went to the island because there was big trees. They don't exist no more. They are dead. They are dead. Frank's literally watching his homeland wash away. My way of life, living in it's gone. It's beautiful, but it's just a skeleton compared to what it used to be.
3: Oh, wow, nice loop. Just cast yet.
2: Oh, fish iron.
3: Oh, put it back out there, cast it back out.
1: There. About 60 miles away, the opposite is happening in Florida Bay and the Upper Keys instead of too much water, the southern tip of the Everglades is getting too little.
3: Put it back out there, cast it back out there. Quick little strips, keep coming, keep
1: coming. We're in Florida Bay with fishing guide Tim Klein.
3: So it's just a, it's a ugly cycle, you know, and, and, You know, we desperately need more consistent water.
1: This is where Tim Klein grew up, on a necklace of islands hanging off South Florida, surrounded by some of the best fishing flats in the world. Acres of seagrass meadows carved up by channels are inhabited by bonefish, tarpon, and permit, the holy trinity of saltwater fly fishing. Years on the flats made Klein one of the best guides in the Keys or anywhere. But here, too little fresh water is reaching the bay. It now gets about half of what it received a century ago. That means in the dry season, the ocean can get too salty. That damages seagrass and drives away fish. And that is killing Klein's way of life.
3: You know, like the most famous bonefish spots in our backyard is what we call downtown, Shell Key, Lignum The grass on those flats are, are you know, like not, 70% of the grass is gone. And that's where you know the bonefish fed and stuff so we the thing that we've lost uh you know starting you know 10 12 years ago is the our our, our big bonefish
1: these days the champion flats guide spends more of his time leading eco tours
3: you take a short ride and then you enter into the Everglades national park you just go into just heaven in my eyes. I I got all new clientele now, because I've been doing this for, what, 38 years now, and the people I've fished in the past are just not here anymore, you know?
1: Restoration promised to deliver enough fresh water to help revive the seagrass meadows where bonefish use their tough snouts to hunt for shrimp and crabs. It still might, but all the while, Florida keeps growing, with more housing sprouting up along the Everglades' borders. Climate change driving up sea levels and creating hotter conditions just compounds the stress. The quandary here isn't so different from other parts of the country, where we're trying to undo the damage from turning nature into infrastructure without considering the consequences. The Colorado River is drying up as demand explodes in fast-growing western states. Building neighborhoods in fire country while trying to put out every single fire has left forests too dense and vulnerable to blowing up in hotter conditions. And channeling the Mississippi River for flood control has robbed the Louisiana coastline of the sediment that once kept it intact against waves. Instead, sea level rise is eating it away. For Klein and those of us who grew up in South Florida, restoration, has always been kind of a white noise in the background. It promises to restore America's Everglades and Florida Bay and reduce
5: the algae-causing discharges. Into our...
1: We've already spent $8 billion on Everglades restoration. But three decades after that plan was first conceived, it's now expected to cost three times more and take up to 50 years to finish, not 20. And the Everglades is still in trouble. In this podcast, we're gonna to try to figure out why. Wrangling competing interests to fix the Everglades has taken a scrum of government agencies, generations of politicians, and piles of plans. Things have changed a lot since the comprehensive plan was passed, but the Everglades has never gotten enough of the three things it needs most, land, fresh water, and willpower.
6: My name is uh, Thomas Van Lent and uh, I'm a retired hydrologist. Van Lent has been working on
1: restoration both for the government and environmental groups since the 1980s, modeling how water should flow to restore parts of the ecosystem.
6: The formula for restoration isn't hard from the ecological perspective. It's putting it back. It's only hard from if you have to maintain all these other things and you can't affect anybody and you can't have any other consequence. That's hard.
1: When he first started working for the South Florida Water Management District, Van Litt used to take these long solo paddling trips around the 10,000 Islands. That's the maze of small islands where the Everglades meets the Gulf of Mexico. They were once a magnet for plume hunters and then pot smugglers in the 70s. He'd paddle sometimes up to nine days. It was a way to connect with what he was trying to model on his computer.
6: There are things you, if you go out there, a lot for year after year, you do start to notice, and it is things like no bone fish or that whole sweep of North Cape was black mangroves, and now it's eroded, the dunes have moved way in, and yeah it, it uh, it's both beautiful and alarming at the same time.
1: And fixes are now harder because of climate change. Sea levels have risen a half foot in Biscayne Bay since Florida first started trying to reconnect the Everglades. So canals have to be kept higher to stop salt water seeping further inland and threatening to contaminate freshwater aquifers. Hurricanes are worse. Over the last three decades, nine major hurricanes have hit Florida. Only four had crossed the state in the same period before that. Nutrient pollution in Lake Okeechobee from farms and neighborhoods is also as high as ever. During the rainy season, the lake often drains that pollution to the St. Lucie and Caloosahatchee estuaries, adding to dirty water already piling up on the crowded coast. Every spring, those communities now brace for toxic algae blooms. Below the lake, stormwater treatment marshes were built after a court ordered the state to clean water but they're maxed out cleaning pollution from sugar fields. So very little lake water gets cleaned and sent to the Everglades in Florida Bay during the dry season when Klein needs it. There's a well-known saying about Everglades restoration, that it's a test, and if we pass, we get to save the planet.
5: You know, there are kind of a million different ways that we are
1: failing this test. Michael Grunwald wrote the book, The Swamp, the Everglades, Florida, and the politics of paradise a few years after the comprehensive Everglades plan was created.
5: But as I kind of got deeper into the swamp and deeper into my obsession, what I really started to see this as as a moral test, as sort of a test of our ability to step back, um, to not always put human greed first, um, to, do things that are uncomfortable for future generations.
1: That's not to say there hasn't been progress, especially lately. Funding is at a record high. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis made restoration a centerpiece of his administration. Democratic President Joe Biden has spent more than any other president. But the compromises that planners say were necessary to make the plan possible Making sure farmers and utilities get their water and growing cities and neighborhoods have flood control have also left it crippled.
5: You had to have something that the sugar industry and the rock mining industry and the development industry and every municipality in Florida and the state and the Republicans and the Democrats um, and also some of the environmentalists at least could sign on to. And that's how they did it.
1: Grunwald said the consensus helped clear the way for getting money approved in Congress and in Florida, but not getting restoration done.
5: There hasn't been the kind of hammer that you've had on water quality where there's been a judge saying, no, the water is not clean. You have to make it clean. There's nobody and no way for somebody to say, no, the Everglades is not restored. You have to make it restored.
0: You're listening to Episode 1 of Bright Lit Place, a new podcast from WLRN. It's reported by environmental editor Jenny Stiletovich. Coming up, how the Army Corps' water management forced the Miccosukee out of their island homes.
3: So the idea of filling this canal is it's just a conduit for
1: nutrients down into the reservation. Amy Castaneda is the water resources director for the Miccosukee tribe. She's driving her four-wheel drive truck to a levee on the reservation that runs alongside that canal where we were walking earlier. It's now dumping pollution on tribal land. So we're gonna head west to the L28 Interceptor now. Drive down the triangle and come back up. Okay. Welcome back. You're listening to Bright Lit Place, a podcast from WLR News distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. The Corps started dredging pieces of their big flood system in the 40s. The L28 and the Interceptor were carved into the Everglades 20 years later. The tribe's tree islands still go by names like Stinking Hammock, Gumtree, and Pigjaw, but now they're surrounded by canals, gates, and pumps with numbers and letters for names. All the canals and levees were meant to drain and control the Everglades. Been a disaster for the Mikasuki, once essentially an island nation inhabiting the tree islands
2: they moved to an island that had big trees so they could use that as a shelter cooling off
1: michael frank the tribal elder sits in the truck's passenger seat since the 40s high water has wiped out nearly half the everglades tree islands the biggest island of all called new town served as kind of a town square This is one of the places Frank's family fled to 200 years ago to hide from the U.S. Army. Then the Army Corps sent their dredges to split Newtown in two.
2: Here it is. The island starts on that side about 400 feet north and west of it. It ends here. When they make the canal, they cut right through it
1: when he was little, Frank says everything the family needed could be found on the tree islands.
2: Back in the old days, when we got to the, yeah, behind Chickachoba, we used to go to the canal and drink from the canal, take a bath, wash, clean. It was crystal clear, you could see all the way to the bottom, and you would see, yeah, sometimes even uh, torpents, even fish that's in the bay, they would swim all the way. Yeah, we, we, we use a spear to get fish, right? You see a big old topping. Oh man, I'm going to have a big dinner. Boom. Your spear was gone. Anything that could, could migrate their way into the canals, they made it out into the Everglades because it was crystal clear. As South Florida grew, the Army Corps needed to keep the swampy Everglades from flooding neighborhoods along the Atlantic coast. Mangos said that they even when they came here, went hunting, visited each other, there was no levy. But the government's levees and
1: canals gradually converted the Miccosukee Reservation into storage space. Frank
2: says already many
1: families had abandoned homes in the area.
2: So everybody moved out. That's, that's why when they came, they just yeah, cut about a third of it off from the original uh, island. And there the are islands out there in the water country, area three that, the islands is called Yad Motagale, Yad means this this, uh, this is a camp where the where the, where the natives came and hit, the people who ran.
1: With the water consistently flooding the islands, his family was forced to move to higher ground along the Tamiami Trail. The cross state highway completed in 1928 that created both a dam across the river of grass and a new border for the
2: tribe. Overnight, there's, there's water here because the levees, the gates were closed and the water can't flow naturally. So that's how we got out of there because we're not a fish, we need dry ground. You walk around, but you have to put planks from chicken to chicken. Frank told me the government trucked in fill
1: and built houses along the highway a few years later.
2: It's big houses and then bought 50 feet, about what maybe 70, 80 feet long, houses, chickies and homes. And here my, my dad, my mom and everybody, we couldn't move in because it had walls. Generations
1: had perfected inhabiting the swamp. Learning to live with the mosquitoes and sweat was
2: hard earned. The chickies are a testament to that. So we just used uh, uh, the house as a storage room. You know what we did? We bought chickies all surrounding that house, that beautiful new house, wooden house. We used maybe the bathroom every now and then But mostly it was used for storage room because our culture forbids us to live in a a house that's got walls. He says eventually, people put palmetto-frond
1: thatch on the roofs to make them look like chickies and moved in. But when Frank talks about his home, he means the Tree Islands. Without the Tree Islands, Frank says there would be no Miccosukee. Back in uh, uh, uh,
2: 1949 or uh, 48, when my grandfather and grandmother moved there. That's when they started working on the levees, 28, coming north. And when they were going working on that, they told my grandfather and grandmother, if that day ever come, your island goes underwater, we'll come and build up your your camp. Which they never did. They were what, three four feet underwater, and that, but they never came and built up built the camp. A
6: lot of empty promises.
1: That's Amy Castaneda, the Water Resources Director for the tribe. We're driving alongside a canal dredged to help drain farm fields north of the reservation. The Army Corps finished dredging the canals and levees across the water conservation areas in 1962, the same year the U.S. government formally recognized the Miccosukees as a sovereign nation. So
2: should I turn around or keep going straight? Yes, you ready? Turn around. We've seen this side, gotta see the other side. You can't drive straight. So mm-hmm. maybe a small, smaller road you can drive straight. See. <laughs> you like them ditches? You like mm-hmm. to go in it?
1: Now the canals carry runoff from sugarcane fields, pastures, and neighborhoods farther north, dumping pollution on the reservation. Before water can enter the conservation areas, it has to be nearly scrubbed clean of phosphorus. The limit is just ten parts per billion—about ten drops for every five hundred barrels of water. The reason it has to be so low is because hardly any phosphorus exists naturally in the Everglades. It all comes from fertilizer. When you add it to the Everglades, phosphorus starts destroying the periphyton. Those are the brown, spongy mats floating all over the Everglades that hold algae and microbes and plant debris. They're the foundation of the Everglades' food chain. After a while, the phosphorus also supercharges the growth of other plants that can clog and crowd out the sawgrass like cattails. So for decades, the canals have acted like a toxic drip, fueling vegetation now choking and filling in parts of the reservation. More than a drip, it's like a faucet running 24-7. Frank asks how high the phosphorus levels are at the end of the canal, where Castaneda tests water flowing from the farm fields in the Everglades Agricultural Area. The end of the levee is usually 80s to 100. Um, but we have spikes where it's over 100. That's eight to 10 times what it should be. Stinking Hammock, another island where Frank's family once lived, is getting harder and harder to reach. And so in order for us to get there, we have to clear, with chainsaws the trail every year. Without clearing that trail every year and airboats using it, you wouldn't even know that there's a trail there. So that's why I was saying it was like, it was a ta- this is a taking of the tribes. There's no access there unless you're physically going out there and mechanically removing the vegetation. There's now a plume fueling vegetation that covers nearly 5,000 acres. The tribe wants the Corps to fill in the canals to help deal with the pollution and rebuild some tree islands.
2: Better for naturally, it's better for the environment, but they, they want to control it all because of man. Men has more rights to the water and to the trees and everything than the animals, which is contrary. We have no rights. We have to belong. We have live yeah, according with, with nature and with the animals and the birds. But development, people want more land, people want more access from here to there. That comes first.
1: When Michael Frank said there would be no Miccosukee without the Everglades, it's because of the way the swamp literally saved the tribe when the U.S. government was trying to wipe it out. In the 1700s, as European settlers tried to stake out territory, the Miccosukee were living in the Apalachicola River Valley in Georgia and Alabama and North Florida.
6: The Miccosukee were kind of right smack in the, the spot that no Europeans controlled.
1: Edward Ornstein is the tribe's attorney and a member of the Muscogee tribe in Alabama. As fighting ramped up between the British, the Spanish, and the French, the tribe moved further south and set up towns along the shores of Lake Miccosukee in Leon County. That's where Florida State capital is now located. They also had camps as far south as the Everglades.
6: The folks who were living up at the Miccosukee tribal town, which was on the banks of Lake Miccosukee, in what is today Leon County, became a hot point for resistance to the uh, newly formed United States.
1: This would become a theme, despite the U.S.'s repeated efforts to sign treaties and move them, the Miccosukee repeatedly fought to remain in that
6: homeland. There was a great deal of coercion and a great deal of ambiguity about the use of force Uh, that was involved in those treaty negotiations, leading to a a great deal of duress.
1: Even if the Miccosukee had signed, it wouldn't have mattered. The treaties were repeatedly broken. When the U.S. took control of Florida from Spain, it created a four million acre reservation in north and central Florida. But then it broke that treaty after it passed the brutal Indian Removal Act to send tribes west. In Florida, troops started rounding up people from the Miccosukee and Seminole tribes and putting them in concentration camps.
6: While there were uh, 13 or 14 bands that were going to remove to Oklahoma, there were still three bands which would not.
1: Despite being hugely outnumbered, they hid in the swamp and fought back. The fighting lasted for seven years before the U.S. gave up and agreed to give the Seminole and Miccosukees nearly all of southwest Florida. But that promise also wouldn't last. Congress refused to ratify the deal. Fighting broke out again, and the Miccosukee and Seminole fled further into the swamp to tree islands protected by a sea of impenetrable sawgrass. As plans to drain the swamp got underway to make way for settlers and farms, Florida carved out another reservation in 1917 on 99,000 acres in what's now Everglades National Park. But that also wouldn't last. The tribe was again forced to move when planning started to create the park, this time to Broward County, where the Seminole tribe now has its headquarters. If you're counting, this was the third time the U.S. government broke its promise and took the tribe's land. But again, one small group refused to leave,
6: the Miccosukee. The tribe said, you're trying to give us land, which is less than the land you took away from us the last time you tried to give us land. And this isn't even land we want.
1: That included Michael Frank's family. They kept living on the tree islands and along the trail. Today, their islands look radically different and with Curtis Osceola, an attorney and the chief of staff for the Miccosukee tribe. We're in a small airboat racing across the marshes over clumps of jagged sawgrass and around stands of cypress. You can see why the Miccosukee call it the bright lit place.
4: We call it the bright place because of how open and clear the water used to be, right? So there was no vegetation, The, the land around this island is very open. You don't see, you know, a lot of the high grass, it's a lot of low grass. The sun, when it comes up, you can see it in the east and then you see it set in the west, right? And that was the point.
1: The grass boats can travel in just a few inches of water, and the marsh glitters as the boats send waves across the sawgrass. A crew from the tribal government is trying to reach one of the tree islands where Michael Frank grew up, Highland.
4: Well first I just wanted to show you like some of the some of the stuff we're seeing, right?
1: Not only are the islands smaller, but many are getting overgrown with invasive species.
4: Something like this, this shoot here. Kevin. Yeah, it's it's like a, I call it elephant grass.
1: Kevin Donaldson oversees the tribe's land resources.
4: And then um, here, that's a pepper, yeah? On the right there.
1: Ah. Brazilian pepper and elephant grass now grow like a wall around pig jaw and the next stop Highland, that's Frank's family's island. Over the years, the tribe has repeatedly sued over damaging water management practices in 1995, 2005, and 2008.
4: The reason why Western Everglades restoration is so complex are because of all of those moving parts, all of those interests. The state agencies are managing the water. The Army Corps is, is trying to make a plan that's viable based on the geology. The private landholders want us to get off their lawn. Uh, The tribes, you know, just want their land to be used for their purposes, not for the purposes of storing and cleaning water. So, you know, all of these interests are colliding and it, it makes the planning process virtually impossible.
1: The project to address problems on tribal lands and in the Western Everglades has been repeatedly delayed over the years. Planning restarted this year, so Osceola is trying to walk a careful line.
4: It's like, OK, we have a problem. We're dealing with an environmental crisis. Who's got, like, come with solutions, you know? Because so if we start finger pointing, we're just going to go all the way back to the colonization of America, all right? And that's not going to get us anywhere. So.
1: fewer AND SMALLER tree islands also mean there's less space for the deer, hogs, raccoons, and other animals out here. During winter months, when water is lower, that also means they're on the move more, like the day we were out there.
3: Huh? Be a little cautious. I didn't put eyes on it. I'm 90% sure there's a bear in the wood line over here. Okay. So let's just be... uh...
6: I heard that crunching.
3: Well, I heard the growl multiple times.
6: So I just wanna be...
3: Just across the
1: clearing on the island, three other wildlife officers have their hands on their guns facing the woods. Officer Bills thinks it's a good idea if we leave quickly.
4: Well, we can kind of just back out of here and go find another island because we we got plenty of places. Yeah, I just don't, I want everybody to be
3: safe. You know, that's why we're here. So we can't.
1: It's this wildlife, the bear, deer, otter, and others that made the island such a good home. But now about 250 acres of tree islands are lost every year.
0: You're listening to the first episode of Bright Lit Place, a new WLRN podcast distributed by the NPR Network. It was reported by environmental editor Jenny Stiletovic. To hear the conclusion, find Bright Lit Place in your favorite podcast app. Now let's spend some time with Jenny and Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer Patrick Farrell, who worked with her on the project. Welcome, guys.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks,
0: Carlos. You know, we're talking so much about connections, right? Like, these actual important connections to this place. So I'm, I'm kind of curious what your guys' connection was to the Everglades before you started doing this project. Pat, you want to jump in here and tell me a little bit about, like, because you grew up down here I grew well. up
7: down here uh, the son of New Yorkers, and they moved down here for the beach. And so we went to... Naples. we would cut through the Everglades to Naples or we would go to Crandon or Cape Florida. It was something you passed so through. So my exposure, yeah, we would pass through. My exposure to the Everglades really wasn't, there wasn't much of it, right. I'm ashamed to say. Uh We did take a eighth grade class trip to Flamingo, which was just awesome. Yeah, but I think all of us outside, grew,
0: up, grew up getting uh, field trips out to the Everglades yeah, and they're memorable, yeah.
7: yeah. Uh, but... I really did not have that much exposure to it. Uh, so,
0: how did this change it? Like being out there to being literally embedded uh, in a in a project like oh, this.
7: Oh, I'm like Jenny said, going out with Michael Frank, especially just to his tree island, and you know, it was early in the morning. It was just gorgeous and peaceful and quiet, except for the birds. It was just, it was gorgeous. What about for you, Jenny? What? <laughs>
1: So, so so my, my dad trained racehorses. I was born in Ocala um, and he died young. We moved down here. I was brought up by a single mom. So we went to the beach. I mean, she had two kids and was harried. So every Saturday she would dump us on the beach um, or we would drive down to the Keys. But the Everglades... I, you know, I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> As a little kid, right? As a little kid, yeah. I did not. And and I will say, and I, we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. um, when I married my husband, who is an angler, that open, opened up a whole other world. We, we didn't get out on the water when I was a kid. Um, he grew up on the water, mm-hmm. and he introduced that part of the world to me. And if you're out on Florida Bay, there's no way you cannot know about the Everglades.
0: And so, like, working on this project, I cause you're obviously the environmental reporter at WLRN, So you're deeply embedded in all these environmental issues, but spending six months just thinking about the Everglades and Everglades' restoration, how did that change what you see um, in your reporting? In your well, life.
1: I, I nearly lost my sanity. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to condense the years and all the effort into Everglades Restoration into six episodes in a podcast was probably, I probably bit off to m- more than I could chew. It was a, It's hugely complicated. Um, I have a way better understanding of not just how restoration works, but, you know, politics in the state, how things get done. Um, it was really eye opening to me to see what was promised 30 years ago and what we wound up with and how that evolved. And I don't think it's just the Everglades that goes through that process. I think a lot of things happen like that.
0: Yeah, you, you talk about uh, Everglades restoration almost almost within quotes, you know, like it's like it feels like an empty promise is what it feels like to one of the characters um, uh, in, your, in your reporting calls this, the idea of, of the Everglades restoration as a moral test. Right. And it feels from your reporting like kind of we failed it. Like we, you know, we are our government, our, our Florida government has, is failing it.
1: Right. So that was Michael Grunwald, who wrote the book The Swamp, um, who is has That book is the foundational work <laughs> for Everglades Restoration. It's the one place where you can find all these different elements coming together. So he was one of the people i knew that i i had to talk to and he he took that line or that that thought anyway from Marjorie stoneman douglas Mm. who many you know was mother of the everglades who was who was that sort of moral compass i when i talked to the tribe i think now that the tribe has become sort of our moral compass in this sort of modern era um but but that it is a test, and it's not just a test for the Everglades. Right now we face all these impacts from climate change. So we have this new test before us, and the Everglades is like <laughs> the midterm, and climate change will be the, the, the final exam. Sorry for the bad metaphor, but, you know, that's the test if we fail. Right. Boy.
0: Right. It's interesting to get some of your uh, your experiences being out there doing reporting because it's one thing, you know, we all sit in an office, people listening to this now might be in their air conditioned cars, but you guys were out in the swamps and you're talking about, not in the swamps, in the Everglades, and talk to me about some of the challenges of getting out there and seeing with your own eyes and smelling and hearing, um, you know, so that you can do this kind of reporting, you know, when it's, you're not just talking to talking heads, Talk to me about some of those challenges, because I know, Pat, you mentioned, like, mud slipping into your knee-high boots and such, right?
1: Well, there's – so there's logistical challenges, right? If you're going to get out on Florida Bay or Biscayne Bay, you need a boat.
0: <laughs> right, right. So
1: – and then – and when and I'll let Pat talk about the STAs, but you need um, – uh, if you're going out in the, the marshes and the wetlands and the sawgrass – you need an airboat which is sometimes even more difficult to get <laughs> than a boat yeah and then once you get out there um you need to get into the water and i'll let pat because he he has camera equipment he is trying to take pictures and not fall down or get sucked under or have his <laughs> waiters fill up i mean it was yeah
0: yeah what was that for you mr non-nature photographer <laughs> she's she's pretty
7: much much addressed at all but we were out a week before then, i think with uh two of the uh Florida water management, um, scientists mm-hmm. and we we're out in the airboat and we saw in a the distance, these field workers, you know, a dozen or more people waiting, you know, waist deep to, ch- you know, to chest deep planting these reeds of bulrush that filter the water. Wow. And I was like, we got to get closer, but there was no way to get closer in the airboat um and and also, I just I just want to
1: point something out. We were safely in an airboat seeing alligators yes, all
7: over the place. Yes. <laughs> and then somebody mentioned water moccasins or, or snakes. So why did it have to be snakes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we arranged to go back the next week and so I the water is dirty 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 you can't see the bottom of the water like real silty yeah, yeah, yeah. this
1: is at the top of the stormwater marshes where all the runoff from the ag fields and from sugarcane come oh. in so it is it is dark you can't what well, it's like four or five feet deep and you can't see your feet that's not that deep. wow
0: you're really <laughs> stepping into darkness there kind of uh, you're 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 putting your you're putting your hopes in a higher power there right
7: so not being a nature photographer <laughs> i don't have that gear I had, you know, working for the Herald, I had a helmet in my trunk and even a bulletproof vest, which I never had to use. <laughs> but uh, I don't have the booties to walk in the muck, so I went to Dick's Sporting Goods and bought the cheapest <laughs> pair I could get. And that first foot into the muck, off of the airboat, sunk, you know, calf deep. And then I pulled that foot out, and it, the the whole booty was full of muck. And so now. Each step I took as I was holding my camera over my head so it wouldn't get wet (laughs) for 50 yards to get to this. You're
1: sinking and what is essentially like mulch. Right, but mucky mulch. Yeah, so it's not just slowly
0: sip. sinking in, right? And
1: with sticks and things, and oh, like, is that an alive a thing? Is that just a <laughs> stick? <laughs>
0: and and you made the interesting decision after like after already being a tough thing, you made it harder on yourself. You decided to shoot on film, which is really interesting. Not the not on that one, okay. but
7: uh, but but with uh, uh, Mikasuki Elder Michael Frank, I brought a roll of film, which wasn't enough. <laughs> because before we even left the dock, he said, oh, you should shoot a picture here because that's one of our older tree islands behind me mm. and it was really pretty and the sun had just come up and next thing you knew, I had already shot half the film and, <laughs> and we hadn't even got on the airboat to go to his family's tree island. So, But why was that interesting to you? Do you still shoot on film nowadays? I the I, I have this old Roloflex camera from the late 50s and the film the feel, the look you get from that film, you can shoot a wide angle picture and as opposed to a wide angle on a 35 millimeter digital camera, it compresses things a little bit. It it throws the the background out of focus a little bit and it's just kind of a, it was a feel I wanted to try to get with this picture, this portrait of of Michael Frank. but maybe i should have brought two or three more rolls of film. <laughs> I thought I thought being on the airboat it might get a little tough to load that camera. He also
1: so. was flying a drone. He was also taking drone footage. So he's not just a photographer, he's also a pilot. <laughs> uh, wow, pilot,
0: photographer, <laughs> multimedia journalist, Patrick Farrell. <laughs> now, I'm I'm curious after being after, you know, going through this project, you know, you have to be able to be in an elevator with someone and said, oh, so what have you been working on for the last six months? You know, well, let me tell you about this podcast. So, what would you want, Jenny, listeners to take away when they when they listen to, to the six-episode series? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, everybody wants, the Everglade, wants Everglades Restoration to succeed. Everybody, d- d- despite, like, the, the lack of hope and the criticism and the complaints about how slowly it's going, everybody wants this to work. And I think what this podcast tries to do is to point out the flaws, but also highlight the beauty and highlight the fact that we, we it is worth saving. It is absolutely worth saving. But you go back to willpower, you know, we just need to make hard choices and those hard choices are gonna mean compromise for a lot of people. We're gonna have to just treat them, the Everglades more carefully and more thoughtfully.
0: It, it's obviously worth saving Is there a way to, like, are we, sometimes it feels like the mountain is so high and we've waited so long for even what feels like minimal change. Is there a way back for the Not Maybe not back to where it was in the 70s, obviously, but is there a way to preserve this thing that makes South Florida, makes the planet unique, but specifically makes South Florida unique?
1: So, there are many scientists dedicated hours of science who have modeled out just exactly how what we need to do to get the Everglades to function mm. like it did before. Mm-hmm. We may not have the footprint, but we can get the function back, and, and that's what restoration is about.
0: Right. So, give us a preview of episode two. What kind of things are we or can folks look forward to seeing?
1: So episode two, we go back to to day one, you know, when Bob Grant said, we're going to save the Everglades and the the uh, Sports Illustrated cover with Christy Brinkley and the story about how awful Florida is and why we're not doing enough to save the Everglades. And then it and it moves forward. We talked to Rock Salt, um, who was with the Army Corps and became the first Everglades czar when he retired from the military after 32 years. And you know, volunteered for the job, but did not. He's, he is nearing 80 now. Maybe he's in his 80s. I forget. And he is still showing up at meetings, seven hour long meetings to advocate and argue for why we need to save the Everglades.
0: If you guys each had to give folks some tips about getting to the Everglades for the first time, if they even grew up down here or moved down here and have spent too much time on the beach or driving straight through to the Keys and ignoring it, like what's one thing that you would like be good advice or a good place to start if you wanna experience the Everglades. You guys wanna jump in there?
1: You want me to go first?
7: I I would say go take an airboat ride with uh the Mikasukis. You know, that the, was exactly the, what I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> uh and go as early as they go out. If if they go out before eight AM, go out with them because it's just there's more birds, I think, earlier in the morning, waiting birds, and it's 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 just lovely out there.
0: Spoken like a photographer, get out with the golden light, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and and the stormwater treatment marshes, while they are an industrial waste facility, because they have so much nutrients and s- stuff growing, the birds there are amazing. And you, there are, are three different areas of treatment marshes, and some of them have public access. If you're a birder, um, you can go out at dawn, get the dawn chorus of the birds coming out, and it is a, just close your eyes and listen.
0: Wow, so bring your journal and bring your binoculars and bring your camera. Patrick Farrell, Jenny Stilettovich, thank you so much for spending time in, with us and talking to us about your podcast. And we look forward to hearing the rest of it.
1: Thank you, Carlos.
0: Thanks, Carlos. That was WLRN's environmental editor, Jenny Stilettovich, and photojournalist, Patrick Farrell. Jenny's podcast is Bright Lit Place, a new WLRN podcast distributed by the NPR network. Find more information at their website, brightlitplace.org. You can see Patrick's photos, maps, and more reporting there. Look for the full podcast in your favorite podcast app. And that's Sundial for Monday, November 27th. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Our producer is Elisa Baena. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio. Our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Balo at gobalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we hear from a local quartet. They reinvent the concert hall by performing classical and pop music in unconventional spaces. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only.